Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. We have a very special show for you today. We're going to be doing something a little bit different. On the line with me now is Dr. Jen and Dr. Lyndon. Good morning, you two. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Very Shane. Well. Mighty fine. Thank you. Now, of course, as... Yep, it's a as, glorious day. <laughs> it is a glorious one. It's better than yesterday, which wouldn't be hard. I think everyone <laughs> in Melbourne probably agrees. But uh, look, it's it's that time of year where the team gets a bit stroppy and they decide they you know they want to do their work for the show. And I, you know, the, the, the request for pay rises comes in. They want 100% increase in their pay rise. And I remind them that they're volunteers, so I can't do it. And so we decide <laughs> to grab some of Dr. Jen and Dr. Lyndon's students to come in and do the show. Jen, tell us a little bit about the program that you run at Melbourne University. Yeah, so I've been teaching science students how to be brilliant communicators, if I do say so myself, for more than a decade now. Can you believe, Shane, we've been doing this together for a really long time. And oh, one yeah. of our favourite parts of the year every year is when I say, so Shane, you know this radio show that's your baby and that you love and you put your heart and soul into every week? How about inviting some of our wonderful students to join you on air? And to your credit, every year you say, yeah, I reckon we could do that. So Lyndon <laughs> and I are so excited that we have some students coming to share their their passion for science with our listeners today. Yep, and it ends up being one of the best shows of the year, folks. So I'm very, very pleased to introduce you to Maeve, Taya and William. Hi, guys. How are you going? Hi. Great. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks so much, so much for having us on the show today, Dr. Shane. Hey, also, thank you. Hello. <laughs> uh, now, we're gonna, the show runs as normal, folks. We don't have any guests today, though, which is a, a little bit of a, uh, a shift from normal. The guys are going to be teaching us a whole lot of science. We're going to start off with our news segment. Uh, Maeve, I think you're up first. What have you got for us from the, the week of news in science? So, I read a really cute story this week in science news, and it's actually a story that your cat doesn't want you to know. Mm. So, if you've ever met a cat, you'll know that they're pretty cool, calm, and collected. Like, they could absolutely write the rule book on playing hard to get. But this new study by scientists in the US shows that maybe our cats care more about us than we think. The scientists looked at the bonds between cats and their owners, and in particular, they were looking at the secure base attachment. What this is, is the comfort that an animal or a human gets from being around their caretaker. This usually happens between parents and their children, and between parents and their children, (laughs) but this bond can also reduce stress. So, It makes people and animals more comfortable when they're in new environments, when their caretaker is around with them, because they're just a lot more relaxed. And it turns out that the same bond can form between pets and their owners. Excitingly, this research shows that this includes cats too. The researchers found that cats were a lot more stressed in new environments when their owners weren't around. And we know that the cats were stressed because they were pretty loud and meowing. So the owners wanted to see if they could calm the cats down using something that's not like their owner. And this isn't a new idea because it's something that's often recommended when you're either rehoming a cat or if you're going travelling and you leave it in the cattery. But interestingly, they found that less than 10% of the cats actually bonded with the object. A lot more of them were noisier and a lot more stressed when they only had the scent of their human but not their Mm. human around. And that's pretty interesting that that caused a lot more distress than having nothing at all. So maybe this research means that we should think again before sending our cats off to the cattery with something that smells like us because it can actually make them miss us more. But a cuter takeaway is also that 
from this cat psychology is that even if they're not always the best at showing it to us, our cats care a lot about us. Yeah, they do. I think we all know that. I mean, the one things my, my cats are doing at the moment, though, is I've got one of those robot vacuums. And when I switch that thing on, my cats both look at me like, what the F is that, dude? And it <laughs> freaks them out. Now, I have a dream that they'll be riding it around at some stage, but that, <laughs> that dream has yet to be realized. So maybe uh, I was going to you know, put something that smells like me on, on top of the robot vacuum, but that's probably not the way to go. Hey, yeah, maybe, maybe you can save that one. Yeah, save, save that one for, an, for another, another comedy sketch. Uh, thanks, Maeve. Great stuff. Taya, what have you got for us? Um, yeah, it's nice to know cats aren't heartless, but I'm still firmly a dog person. Uh, so <laughs> um, imagine being able to treat wastewater while also generating electricity. Um, so this is something that microbial fuel cells allow us to do. So microbial fuel cells uh, work somewhat like a battery and they use natural reactions of certain bacteria and microbes to generate waste into electricity. And a team at UCLA have been studying a bacteria called Shiwanella. Um, I probably pronounced that wrong, but it's a bacteria that's really good at growing in harsh anaerobic, which is low oxygen conditions, such as those you would find at a waste plant. Um, but it's not particularly efficient at extracting energy. So prior to this, they've kind of been considered as uh, too low um, for practical applications. Um, so you've probably heard the saying that every cloud has a silver lining, and the silver lining in this research is quite literal. So the the research kind of they so microbial fuel cells work because you have a positive and a negative electrode, and they've coded this electrode in this material that has silver nanoparticles in it. And so when the bacteria um, forms a film around the electrode, um, and that's where the chemical reactions occur that create the electric current. Um, and with the with the silver nanoparticles, they get incorporated into the bacterium membrane. Yeah. Um, so silver is a metal. Metal is conductive. And so it basically acts like... Uh, like a like a super transmitter and enhances the capacity of the bacteria to transmit electricity and it's more than doubled the total efficiency of these fuel cells which means that they could actually be viable for waste treatment and generating electricity um and as a renewable energy source which is just really cool yeah look i mean that's it's such a big industry too in terms of you know that, that sort of treatment of, of those sorts of byproducts of human activity if you know if we can clean it up and make that a lot cheaper and more efficient then you know the the outcome of that i just i just love the idea of you know electrically conductive bacteria i think that's um yeah. that's kind of cool stuff i mean you know you know eels electric eels sorry move over something, <laughs> something new this is going to be even better so nice stuff thank you taya william what have you got for us well um there's a common idea that a lot of the um, matter in the universe is missing. Mm. But what I'm talking about is not actually dark matter. Um, you know, you've got dark matter, like uh, 85% of the mass of the universe is, is, is dark matter. We can't, you know, sense it or anything, uh, which is a bit of a problem. But I'm actually just talking about normal matter, in um, the stuff that you and I are made of and the sun and everything, basically, that we can see. Because um, apparently... Galaxies, when they're in space, are kind of like islands. You know, they're millions of light years apart. Apparently, the average is about a million, which is far too far. <laughs> and the um, 80% of the mass that should be in these galaxies, the normal matter, is just not there. Mm. And apparently, we weren't sure why. But some scientists in Chile might have actually figured this out. Um, they were using an instrument called MUSE, uh, which is part of the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, my favourite telescope name. 
are on top of a mountain in the Atacama Desert and pointed at a galaxy. Um, they chose that specific galaxy because it had a little quasar there so they could figure it out where it was. And it turns out that the mass, the missing mass, is actually being exchanged between the galaxy and a nebula that's forming around the galaxy by these things called stellar winds. So huge explosions, like um, explosions of stars, produce these winds of like charged particles and, and burning and freezing gases. And uh, in this case, it's magnesium gas, and it's moving both from and into the galaxy um, between the nebula and the galaxy. So it's a sort of a, a way, it's a matter exchange pathway between galaxies and the, and the outside world. Hmm. into the sort of sea of the void. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's amazing this stuff because most of it we can't see from here. It's very hard to detect. And, you know, often often the best ways to detect this stuff is through um, the things that are missing or, or the, you know, the way in which light travels around some of these objects. And, you know, we know an object's there because, you know, there's there's something massive there that's moving light in one direction or another and we can detect that. But these things, that they're so far away that, you know, it's it's very difficult. So much good science has come out of Chile. I love it, mm. um, especially yeah, and and you know not to not to discourage them from the naming of telescopes because you know the very large array of course replaced the the large array, um, but you know these 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 things put out so much data and often you don't even realize what's coming from that data until years later after it's been um, analyzed. So it's good stuff. Well. That's um, interesting, guys. Thanks so much for those those segments of news. Now, I wanted to just reflect uh, before we go to our break on a, a little story for people in Melbourne this morning because I think there's a there's a lot of negativity going on at the moment with regards to people wearing masks and not wearing masks and all the various things. And I just wanted to reflect on an experience I had this morning where I, I went into my local sort of restaurant eatery place, which I'm trying to get as much takeaway food from as possible so that they stay alive, so that when we all get out of this pandemic and lockdown, that I can actually go and, and get a meal there, which I, I like doing. And I think they, they need a, a lot of these, these locations need our support for that. But um, I went in there fully masked up and I was waiting for my pickup. And a gentleman came in after me, um, young tradie guy, you know, mid-20s, late-20s, and not wearing a mask at all. And I thought, oh, and immediately I had a you know, bit of a negative reaction to that. But the part that I want people to remember was that he immediately looked at me and, and checked whether or not I was in front of him in the queue. He was really polite and considerate. And so I started thinking, you know, what, what's going on here? Because it's a more complex scenario than everyone who's not wearing a mask is just an awful human being. Because this guy clearly wasn't, but there was something that was preventing him from following that particular health order. And I think all of us need to really take a bit of a, a look at this and just say, okay, let's just, you know, before we judge people, before we you know, go off, go off and other people, which I know a lot of people are doing at the moment. Let's just consider where, where they're coming from, what information they've been given, where they're getting their sources of science, how much misleading information has been thrown at them and why they might be doing something that's not in everyone's best interests. And I think if we can all just calm down a little bit about this, I think we'll be doing a lot better. Dr. Jen, you, you must experience this as well with, you know, both of us have been, and, and you, Lyndon, too, we've been science communicators for a very long time, and we're seeing the really poor examples of science communication, you know, over the last 18 months. And some of these things, I think, are the effect of that. What are your thoughts, Jen? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the issue is just that, you know, the more frustrated and tired we all get, the easier it is to constantly, you know, apportion blame to people that appear to be the ones that should, you know, should be the butt of our anger and our anxiety. And as you say, it's just more complicated than that. And there's a lot of people who haven't had access to the science that we've had access to or haven't had the, you know, the training that we are so privileged to have to understand the science. And I don't know, I think most people are just trying to do their best. And of course, there are people out there who I'm sure aren't but yeah it's it's so easy to judge isn't it Shane but you yeah. just got to pull back a little bit. <laughs> Lyndon any thoughts? Yeah I would agree I think particularly at the moment what are we 18 months in we're all absolutely knackered and and us versus them goodies versus baddies I, I did something that is much easier to hold and easier to kind of grapple with than thinking about this as quite a really a complicated situation that everybody's tired and everybody's getting information from all sorts of places and we also know and we've seen it you've talked about it before Shane that the power of one negative story to scare someone out of making a decision or to make them question you know really good science that they might have heard from a few other places oh so we I guess we just have to keep living in this gray for a little bit and being respectful to each other and having conversations and sharing our stories of getting vaccinated and not having symptoms and being able to have freedoms again and all of those kinds of things to help get people who might still be um, still be uncertain getting them over the line. Yep, absolutely. And look, it's a good day on Einstein to go-go when someone uses the technical term knackered to describe how we're all doing. <laughs> Thank- you know I'm always about the technical terms, Shane. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Linden. Triple R. We've got some of Dr. Jen's students in the virtual studio with me today. And William is first up. He's going to tell us something about pseudoscience and the history of electricity. Over to you, William. Well, thanks, Dr. Shane. Um, all the news we've been talking about is fresh and new and interesting. What I want to talk about is something that's much older, but I'm going to say it's still interesting because old science is interesting, I think, because it's still relevant to us today because science doesn't fundamentally change. And one of the things that is there the whole time is pseudoscience. Pseudoscience, we have it now, we've had it then. Now we have flat earthers, then we had people talking about electricity because the thing is... We take electricity for granted. We, we, you know, we go somewhere, we flip on a switch, the light comes on. We don't go, ooh, ah, a, a marvel of nature. We just kind of deal with it. Um, we don't really think about it. Speak for, you, speak for yourself, William. <laughs> As a physics guy, I still go, ooh, ah, every time I turn on a light. Fair enough. Okay. But, <laughs> but people who are not physics guys, they just ignore it. You know, who cares? But in the 1800s, electricity was the marvel of the age. It was absolutely incredible. Um, and also mainly because nobody understood it. 1752, Benjamin Franklin goes out before a storm with his kite and his son. People leave the sun out of the story, but that's, I think, important because it speaks to his character. Um, he works out that lightning is electricity. 1780, uh, Luigi and Lucio Galvani, people leave Lucio out. There's a lot of um, leaving people out of stories in this. Um, poked a, a frog with a little bit of metal and the leg kicked and they went, aha, nerves carry electricity. Um, 1800, uh, Alessandro Volta, um, from whom we get the term Volt, um, invents the first battery made out of metal and seawater. Uh, and then in the 1840s, and I did not believe this when I read this, we invented the telegraph and we still didn't know how electricity worked. So we were using it for communication. We still didn't understand it, which is insane. Um, so at this point, people just think electricity is this fluid that's everywhere, but we can't see it and can't taste it and can't touch it. So, you know, a win for science. Um <laughs> On the medical side, at the time, everything was going in this really 
uh, interesting new direction called physiology, which was very new at the time, where they thought the body is basically clockwork, the mind is clockwork, you know, everything is physical. Um, and they um, thought that uh, mental disorders were caused by like lesions in the nerves and brain. And at the time, a lot of scientists were baffled because when they electrocuted people, basically, they found for some reason it cured some of these disorders. Sometimes. Sometimes it did nothing, which was the baffling part. Um, they were sticking people with electrodes, uh, which apparently caused the skin to blister, which is disgusting. Uh, and uh, also giving people a thing called an electric bath, which is where you use a frictional uh, electric, um, generator, which is a big wheel, and you have a person on a little glass table and uh, you charge them up to 50 kilovolts and they glow in the dark and then you draw off the charge and apparently that worked. That was good for people. Um, so the scientists were absolutely, uh, you know, just had no idea how this worked and they were trying to look for these little lesions. They were trying to look for the, for the cause of all this and they couldn't find any evidence. And their reaction to this was not to go, ah, we were wrong. It was to go, ah, the instruments aren't good enough. We'll find them. It'll be okay. And because they were being so stubborn, um, there was a gap. And into that gap rushed pseudoscience um, because some very <laughs> enterprising people who owned some very big companies, some of which were started for this, electric companies, started making these things called electrizing products um, to cure all people's ills. Uh, there were um, there were hairbrushes, uh, real bristles, not metal, was the advertisement, which is insane because who has metal bristles? That would be awful. Um, they had corsets, electrical corsets, which is even worse than a regular corset. They had um, belts, uh, like they look suspiciously like chastity belts. Um, uh, and these were wildly popular. Like they were insanely, everyone had them. Uh, apparently there was one guy who was so swallowed up in, in metal, he looked like a mummy. So these people are all just dripping with, with, with vinegar and, and brine as they charge up their little, their little voltaic piles in their, um, in their electrizing products. And um, meanwhile, the scientists are trying to denounce this stuff, which is pretty difficult when you're investigating it yourself. And they're pottering along and decades pass until they're getting into the 1890s. And finally, their wishes come true. The instrumentation arrives. It turns out, they were completely wrong. <laughs> the, um, there was a guy named Engelskin who found out that, yes, electricity did actually help, like, damaged cells, but it uh, ruined all the cells around, around the damaged cells. So it was basically like a net zero effect. It wasn't very good. And he also found in that very same paper that hot and cold water could do the same thing as electricity, which, as everyone probably is thinking, that sounds a lot like the, the placebo effect. Mm. And it was. <laughs> Because they knew about the placebo effect beforehand, but, but they didn't know that it worked. They just thought that placebo for them was like uh, you give a patient some, some medicine that does nothing because they won't shut up. Um, but it turned out it did work. So um, physiology was wrong. You had to come in with this new science of um, psychology with emerging people like Freud um, had to prove them wrong. And so the scientists all just kind of got very sad and quietly dropped the idea. And because they dropped it, it was no longer fashionable. It was no longer the current science. So the pseudoscientists had dropped it and all the companies stopped making electrizing products um, and they sort of moved on to the next thing, which was radiation. So they made stuff like radiozone, which has nothing to do with radiation or ozone. It was just 
they just sort of stapled the words together. Hmm. And uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> so that's so people were wearing electricity, right? That's kind yes. of like were they okay? Like didn't they just get full electrocuted? They were okay. <laughs> they were, so, so when I said electrocuted before, I was using the wrong word because electrocuted technically means killed by electricity. They were constantly <laughs> being um like charged with electricity. <laughs> it is interesting though because the electric bath was was static electricity generating um, using like a big wheel. But but the like the belts and things were voltaic piles. Like they were, it was like copper and zinc, and then like soaked in vinegar uh, to, to to as the um, the uh, what it was called the electrolyte. And and they were so so they were charging themselves with like the same electricity that we would get from like a, a, from a wet cell battery. That's crazy. So, so would they get like would you, if you're wearing one of these things, would you feel like a little zap, or would it just be kind of like a constant state of a little bit? Uh, electrical. <laughs> I, I, the idea was that it was constantly giving you like okay. charging with electricity, and until 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 the dowels, the wooden bits of the of the belt or whatever you had dried out. But yeah, it was like that, like, like I said, there was one guy who looked like a mummy. Like he apparently he like wore <laughs> wore a belt and a, and like a waistcoat thing, and like I think he had trousers. I can't remember. It was a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm so yeah. glad we don't do that anymore. <laughs> it, yeah, it's absolutely nonsense. <laughs> well, it's. Interesting stuff, William. I think uh, I love the composite word stuff, though. I remember Jen, Jen might remember this from years ago, but I used to walk through the cosmetics ground floor section of Maya and I'd grab all the um, all the little brochures uh, about 15, 20 years ago and then I'd bring them into the show and I'd read out some of the composite words that would be in there that were just made up trademark BS um, to sell various cosmetics. And I, my, my personal favorite was the term super hydrating gel. One word, trademarked. I can't remember who owned it. <laughs> People can probably Google it. Um, but it just sounded wet to me. It sounded like you yeah. know, no matter what it was, you were putting some wetness on you and that was good. You know, that was good. And that was exactly what the marketing team were trying to get across. So it's 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 great to hear that that stuff was way back, you know, 150 odd years ago, people doing the exact same sort of stuff, which is um, yeah, it's been yeah, around forever. really misleading. Lyndon? Interesting that your example just then, Shane, and your examples, William, your terrifying <laughs> examples are all largely focused on women as well. I wonder mm. if there was some kind of sub-science behind that. The, so there was the definitely the corsets. When I said chastity belts, they were actually for men and women. They just looked like chastity belts. Um, but the corsets were obviously for women. But um, there was there definitely was like this um, like paradigm where um, the, the mental disorders they were talking about. From, there was this idea it called, they called it neurasthenia, and it was like this collection of mental disorders. And technically, it was for both sexes. But in the literature, it became because it reflected the, the ideals of the time. Neurasthenia affected men. And uh, hysteria affected women. Although, actually, by the time I'm talking about that, that sort of like late 1800s, there were actually there were um, scientists starting to go. That seems like that's just nonsense. So they were actually, no, it's probably just neurasthenia all around, which is like a win for women, I guess, in a way. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Taya. Taya. So weird electrical gadgets are still around today, though. I know when I was a kid, we had an electric fly swat. Um, that was supposed to, you know, zap the flies out of uh, help be really effective. <laughs> electricity, if you zap a fly with electricity, it, is, it probably will hurt it. Because mm. the, the th- I think the interesting thing about these is, is that they're supposed to help, not to just, if you, if you want to be electrocuted, you can, you can do that for very, like, you don't need to buy, like, a, a thing, my friend. You could just, you know, stick a fork in a socket. But it's, 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 I think it's the... They're like the medical benefits that they were sort of purporting were insane. Like they were trying to cure syphilis with this stuff using electric toilets, which is very, I won't go into it because it's awful, but you can imagine. 
Yeah. Look, electricity is still, it's a fascinating thing even today. Everyone loves it. Anything, you know, if you want to go and see some cool stuff, folks, you know, Google ball lightning, for example, and you'll find the most, some of the most amazing imagery. And, you know, it is something that uh, we understand very well these days, which is nice because we can use it far more in a far more refined way than we ever have before in history. But um, there are still elements of how it interacts with the body that we don't understand. And I think you only need to look at the way electroconvulsive shock therapy and so forth has evolved over the last 30 to 50 years to see how some of those, you know, some of those different clinical applications have occurred in addition to just the, the way in which we monitor the brain and how the brain is functioning in electrical ways is super interesting. Well, William, thanks so much for that uh, little trek down our sort of past there in terms of history. It's, it's interesting hearing all the names, you know, Voltaire, we hear about, you know, um, hear that now, that name, we don't think about it. We don't think about where volts comes from. We don't think about uh, galvanic cells, you know, and batteries and, and where those names come from and some of these amazing scientists and the people around them at the time that were involved. So thanks so much for that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're uh, doing uh, the student show today. We're all of Jen and Lyndon's science comm students come in and take over the station, which is good. And next up uh, to tell us a bit about a very important topic is Taya. Now, Taya's going to be talking about animal lifespans and where the bigger animals live longer. Now, I'm tall, Taya, and I've lost the last 18 months, like there's been jack shit happening, and I need to live a bit longer. What, what's the situation? How are we going? Oh, hang on. Let me turn your mic on. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, humans humans are pretty pretty lucky in that we have an exceptionally long lifespan for our body size. Um, so, yeah. But um, uh, let's start back at the start of, of, of lifespan theories. The year is 1908. Uh, old Max Rubner is on his farm, and he has a guinea pig and a cat and a dog and a horse and a cow, and he's looking at them, and they're all different sizes, and they all live for different times. And so he comes up with the rate of living theory which is that bigger animals live longer. Um, and he was wrong about this theory originally, um, but not about the body size thing, about his explanation for the body size. So he originally thought that the reason that larger animals live longer is because they had a slower metabolism. And so basically the rate of mass increased faster than the rate of energy efficiency. So he thought that if you took 5,000 kilograms of elephants like a 5,000 kilogram elephant, it would expend less energy than 5,000 kilograms of mice. Right. Yeah. Um, he wasn't, yeah, he wasn't wrong in this, but he generalizing it across the entire animal kingdom uh, is a little bit, a little bit hasty. So the truth of aging and why different animals live to different ages is much more complex. It involves a balance of different factors, including body size and metabolism, genetics and the environment. Um, and the environment is the big one that Max Rubner missed. So with the body size, when you look across the animal kingdom, it's generally generally true. A mouse lives maybe three years. Elephants live probably seven-ish. Um, but the reason for this is uh, due to an evolutionary driver rather than the energy thing that Max Rubner thought about. Um, so if you think about small animals like mice, uh, there's a lot of ways that a mice can get into a troublesome situation that ends to uh, its demise. 
So, you know, there's a lot of predators. It can just get squished. They can <laughs> fall into a bucket and get stuck there. So, yeah. <laughs> it can fall into a bucket. I just love yeah, that. A- I love that. Darwin would love that. You know, one of the reasons <laughs> the mouse has the long tail is to prevent it from falling into a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of things that can go wrong for a mouse or a small animal. And so they've evolved to reproduce quickly. Um, and they don't have the luxury of time and they don't really have the luxury of, of an extended lifetime where something like an elephant, kind of a lot harder to eat if you're, if, or, or to, to prey upon. Um, and, and they so don't fall into buckets. To... They don't fall into buckets. <laughs> no. yeah. Very Unless big that's a really big alien bucket. Yeah. You know, <laughs> can't completely rule it out. Um, I think that's but, a canyon, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, that, I guess they could. Yeah. Fall into canyons. Um, but yeah, so they're able to multi- uh, to reproduce multiple times in their in their lifespan, and so they've kind of evolved to live longer. There are other factors. Metabolism is a is a thing as well, but it's linked again to the environment rather than linked to the body size. So the Greenland shark lives in the Arctic waters, uh, and it lives for up to four hundred years, which is ridiculous. Um, and it's in these freezing cold temperatures. It has an extremely slow heart rate, very slow metabolism and a really long lifespan. Um, and also if you look at Arctic clams, they live for 500 years. Whereas if you compare that to just the regular giant clam, they only, and I say only, but they live for a hundred years. So yeah, so there's something definitely there with the, with the metabolism and the environment. But then you look at things that fly and metabolism is shot out the window. So birds and bats, um, they live exceptionally long for, like, considering their size. Um, Out of 19 species of mammal, other than humans, that live longer than they're expected, uh, longer than you would think given their body size, 18 of those species are bats. Wow. Yeah. So bats are just really cool little weird creatures. And, like, red-tailed cockatoos are my favourite bird, and they, they can live for, like, 50 years. Um, so yeah, um, the reason for this is that flying uses a lot of energy. So you get increased heart rate, increased metabolism. Um, and to cope with that, um, I think I should backtrack and explain metabolism a little bit. So basically the thing with metabolism is the chemical reactions that occur inside your body. Um, and these kind of produce these things called free radicals. Um, and free radicals is basically just uh, stuff with a loose electron that bounces around and causes like cell damage. And this is thought to be one of the things that also causes aging. I mean, aging is super complex. People don't really understand it, which is really frustrating. I was trying to research like, why do we age? And no one really knows yet. Um, yeah. So metabolism, birds and bats have a really fast metabolism and it's like so hectic that they get DNA damage as they fly. So to combat this, they've evolved to like also repair their DNA, which kind of has the additional factor of incre- increasing their lifespan. Hmm. It's amazing yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, and I know with, um, you know, with humans, you know, we have this, um, this telomere problem, you know, when our, our life is related to these, the end points of our DNA. So it's like, um, I mean, yeah. I, I, people who listen to the show a lot know I hate analogies, but the, the, the analogy of a shoelace and it fraying at the end after it gets old is the perfect analogy for DNA and, and, and telomeres. And I think you have, um, 
you have this situation where there's there's this chemical called telomerase, which we have in our bodies, which stops that happening. And I remember a couple of years ago, uh, well, 18 months ago, I was supposed to do an interview with Elizabeth Blackburn, one of our Nobel Prize winners who did all the work on this, yeah. but it was cancelled because of COVID, sadly. We couldn't do it. But I had to learn a lot about this when, when mm. I was preparing. And I was like, well, just pump me full of this telomerase stuff. That sounds great. Of course, the... That's a bad the, idea, right? Yeah, the downside of that is you get cancer. So, yeah. you know, some of these animals you're talking about, you know, they obviously have these these mechanisms where they can maintain and maintain their DNA integrity with some of these chemicals yeah. without causing those negative effects. And I think, I think lobsters as well don't get cancer, which is really yeah. cool stuff, which is why they live so long. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's one species of bat, Myotis, um, is the longest lived bat. It lives for 41 years. And the way that they deal with their telomeres, so most um, creatures, the, the telomeres shorten with age. But for some reason in these bats, they just don't. Mm. Um, yeah, so the papers on that have been published fairly recently. So they've discovered it happens, but they still haven't discovered why. Um, but definitely something to do with that flight evolution, something to do with their DNA repair stuff. It's very cool. Yeah, it's very cool stuff. William, you had a question? Yeah, so leaving telomeres alone for a second because they they scare me. Um, yes. What I had to learn about them um, about the free radicals because that's like a separate issue. Why? Yes. What's the what's the theory behind why um, these really high metabolism animals have have figured out a way to sort of curb those and make sure they're not or, or curb the damage? But surely that would be advantageous to to a lot of different animals. Is the idea that they have more of an advantage because they're just yeah. so. See, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's probably to do with the fact that, like, in normal, like, non-flying animals, the rate of, like, free radicals being generated by the metabolism, it's slow enough that it wouldn't really require an evolutionary response. Whereas in the ones that fly, while they're flying, because their heart rate is increased so much for the duration of the flight, they need some way to deal with it immediately. Mm. So. So what you're saying is if we, as a, as a race, we set aside some people, we set aside our whole species, and we had them run, like, all the time, like, constantly running. And so they just generated these free radicals. Eventually, and then they, they, all, they all reproduce. And then maybe, like, 100 million years down the line, they will look entirely different, but they might live, like, a really long time. I mean, th- maybe. There'd be a <laughs> lot of people... If you if a lot of people ran that fast, not many of them would survive. But the ones that did, sure, they might develop superpowers. But yeah. you see what I mean? Because this is solves the <laughs> aging problem. All these people yeah, are looking yeah. at like we just we just have to get these people to run. For I mean, I mean, millions of years. The interesting thing for me is, you know, like it, it, the aging problem is, is a funny one because what we what we're not interested in as a species is lifespan. What we're interested in is health span. Mm. That's that's what matters. And my question for the Greenland sharks is. You know, okay, you live for four hundred years, but how long are you swimming around feeling good? Like, is <laughs> is it for three ninety eight, or you, you you're sort of cacking it out at about two fifty? In which case, the last hundred and fifty years are kind of torturous, because that's the part that I'm always focused on the the health span. Like, how long are our bodies functional to a degree that we can live, you know, fairly engaged lives? And we're seeing more and more of this at the moment, where we're trying to increase our health span, and we, you know, we don't want a scenario where you have many comorbidities from you know, age 50 that you're struggling with that really make life difficult. And, and that's where, you know, that's where I hope a lot of the research goes. And I think, um, Taya, when we look at some of these, these different creatures, like obviously a bat has to have a pretty yeah. good health span almost up until the day it dies or it will yeah. just die. So, exactly. you know, there's an interesting difference there between humans and, and some of these animals. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I have a little bit on species with like within a species as well, if we have time for yeah, that. Yeah, tell us, tell us. Yeah, okay. So you might notice have noticed that um so I'm saying bigger animals that die older. <laughs> but <laughs> um in dogs, big dogs live shorter lifespans than small dogs, mm. which is you know, a strange little exception to the rules. So within a species, this rule is completely null. And they think that it might be because bigger animals within the species, they've got the same kind of evolutionary path, but because they're larger, they grow faster. And so they expend more energy in growing and then they age faster. Yeah. I think that's, is, yeah, just really. I think the dog example, I remember Dr. Laura a few months back doing something on this and I don't remember the details, but I suspect it has a lot to do with humans tinkering with breeding uh, as as opposed to baseline evolution working out how long they should live. I think when we start tinkering around and making labradoodles and whatever the other things are, um, all sorts of difficulties come into play and and yeah, that's probably made some changes there. Taya, thanks so much. It's it's a great great series of thoughts there. I I think everyone's interested in aging. Um, Those are us who are you know getting older um more so um so sorry sorry to our younger audience if you're <laughs> but uh, for the rest of us bloody hell uh we're in trouble and we've just lost like 18 months i don't know about the rest of you i don't feel like i've achieved jack triple r on fm digital online via the app I just want to say a big uh, cheerio out there to all the people who have subscribed to 3RRR during the show. Um, I can see them coming up here on the pledge monitor and we're outside the sort of uh, the more vocal part of the Radiothon and we don't read everyone out, but the Radiothon does continue until the 6th of October, 5 p.m. Wednesday, the 6th of October. So if you haven't uh, subscribed to RRR this year and you wanted to support the station, we would very much appreciate that. And um, yeah. It will help us keep doing what we love doing the most. Most of us here are volunteers, so um, we enjoy bringing radio to you. But there's a whole lot of gear and people that keep it together and office people and everyone else that makes up Triple R that we need your support for. So if you've got some spare cash, please throw it in and subscribe. Just get online at rrr.org.au. And the instructions there are pretty clear. Anyway, uh, back to some science. We have Maeve now. We're going to be talking about lab-grown milk. Uh Yeah, thanks, Dr. Shane. I'm so excited to tell you guys about it. Um, So I'd like to actually start with a question for you guys here in the virtual studio. I want to know what you think about when you think about Werribee. Werribee? Werribee? Werribee. Well, I grew up in in Yarraville, so I have to say sewage and smelliness. (laughs) And yeah, I'm sorry. Right, I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry to everyone in 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 Werribee now because it is not like that anymore. But you know, 45 years ago, that's all I can say. Yeah. Look, the reputation is a little bit well crap. Maybe that's harsh <laughs> <laughs> because there is some really cool stuff happening down there. A company called Eden Brew has started up this year, and they're working on making cow-free vegan milk, and that's happening in labs just over the Westgate Freeway, over the Westgate Bridge. And this wouldn't be like your soy milk or your almond milk. This would be like real milk, like the same stuff that you get out of the cow, but without the cow. It sounds cool and it might not even be a distant reality. Some companies in countries around the world have already been working on it. And this includes companies in the US, the UK and Israel. One company called Perfect Day has already actually released six flavours of ice cream using this technology. And a bit closer to home, Eden Brew and Werribee reckons that we could be drinking... Cow-free milk here in Australia within 18 months. Wow. Yeah, right? Um, So how do scientists actually make milk without a cow? 
the first thing that they do is that they think about the recipe for milk. And that sounds kind of counterintuitive because usually you use milk in a recipe rather than having a recipe for milk. But that's what the scientists have got to do. To make 100 mils of milk, you need 80 mils of water, some fats, sugars, minerals, and also six important proteins. The scientists have been really focused on the proteins so far. There are lots of different types of proteins, and the instructions on how to make them are in your DNA. Uh, they're actually called genes. So each species has its own unique set of proteins, and scientists have figured out how to get species to show the proteins of another species just by moving and sharing genes between them. This is exactly how scientists are making this cow-free milk. So they're removing the milk gene and putting it into the DNA of yeast. Then the yeast cells grow and divide, and they pass on their um, this, these proteins to all their baby yeast cells and soon there are heaps of yeast cells and they're all making the milk protein. The scientists can collect this and then mix it with sugars, fats, water and voila, you've got milk. This actually isn't an animal product anymore, it's a yeast product, just like beer or bread. And while moving genes around sounds really compli complicated, it's something we've been doing for a long time. So the way we treat diabetes is with insulin, and we make insulin this way, and we have been for 50 years. And we also use it to make rennet, which is an ingredient in cheese. So for all you dairy lovers out there who might be a little bit against this technology, you're probably already eating it. It sounds way too good to be true, right? Like, And it sounds like we've got a pretty down pat. But there are still some challenges that scientists are working on. At the moment, we've figured out how to make uh, cow-free dairy products like ice cream and cheeses on its way because they're just easier. A glass of liquid milk is hard, and that's mostly because of the fats. The right fats are really necessary because they give milk the right creaminess and taste, but they're also a lot more complicated to make because there's a lot more steps. But it's still early days, and there's a lot of time to iron out these creases. Personally, I'm really hopeful about this technology. Just considering how far lab-grown meat has come in the last 10 years, and that uses a lot more tech, um, complicated technology. And obviously, Edinburgh agrees because they reckon that we could be drinking it right here in Melbourne by next Christmas. It's super interesting stuff. I mean, for me, you know, and Dr. Jen and I have talked about this a little bit over the years, but um, I find when I go and buy milk, and two litres of milk costs me, you know, two, somewhere between $2.50 and $3.50, something in that range, this to me feels like about a tenth of what it should cost. And mm. this may be an unpopular opinion. Um, a lot of people like, you know, <laughs> two products, but but realistically, you know, the difficulties involved and, you know, how hard it is to do some of this stuff and, and the animals involved, you know, I would have no problem literally paying probably, you know, at least 10 times what I currently pay for milk because I think it's an incredible product. And if I could source that in a way that didn't require, you know, the large use of animals in this way, then I would jump at that in a second. Is there any indication maybe on sort of where they're, they're targeting this milk initially? Like, is it sort of going to go mainstream for sale or is it going to be sort of a boutique, you know, well, like uh, almond milk type thing? Or is it, what, what, what are the thoughts there? So um, they're actually the brand called Eden Brew, who's working in Werribee, mm. has teamed up with Norco, who's Australia's biggest dairy cooperative. So yep. it actually does have some backing from the dairy industry, which is really interesting. So I think that honestly, just because it has to be refrigerated, it will be stored with, like alongside lots of um, dairy milks. And but I think that it will kind of it'll, it's sort of a middle ground, and because of the technology that is involved in making it, it will inhabit that place for a while. 
Yeah. It's one of those things too where whenever these disruptive technologies like different, we, we do have to think about the existing industries and say, okay, there's a lot of people there who derive their income and their livelihoods from this and not everyone may agree with the way that works, but you know, just ripping that industry out under them in 18 months, not that it's going to be that mm. quick, um, can be you know very, very disruptive and, and we do need to think of ways in which we can transition that if that's the path we're going down. But I know the, the artificial meat stuff, it seems to, every now and then it sort of seems to lurch forward and then you don't hear anything for a while and then it lurch forward a bit and you don't hear anything for a while. But ultimately this stuff is just cells, right? I mean, it's just different types of cells that we, mm. we consume and we do all sorts of lab work that involves the reproduction of cells in the dish for our experiments, right? I mean, it's not, not all these cell lines are, are brand new. Some of them are decades old. I'm not a biochemist or, a, you know, a medical person, but, you know, some of the cell lines we use for a lot of experimentation are literally decades old. They, you know, they keep using them because they're so effective. So it's, it's a really interesting um, set of work. Mm. I think it's I was just oh yeah sorry. Go as, a, as a lactose intolerant person I was just wondering is this cow-free milk also lactose <laughs> yeah it actually is that's a really interesting thing about it is because you're making this milk from scratch right so that gives so much control so companies that are already working on it have decided to leave out lactose because it doesn't really influence the flavor and it just makes it able to be ingested by sensitive tummies and they're also leaving out lots of cholesterols and stuff so it's better for your heart as well the the and of course oh sorry oh, sorry, sorry we was just going to say the, the immediate extension to that of course is cream are they are they looking at, at making creams and so forth as well because you know it's, um, it's not just milk the industry doesn't just produce milk yeah well they have already made ice cream and there's definitely lots of companies working on cheese so I think yeah cream's probably one of the ones that they're also having a go at yep William well, about the 18 months thing, you said mm-hmm. they're working on the proteins now. Uh, mm-hmm. How many proteins have they got currently out of So the- there's the six and they have isolated them. This is um from, there's a bunch of different companies working on it. So it's hard to get like where every individual yeah. company is at. Um, but it sounds like at least in like the big US company has definitely done the proteins and they're working on the fats at the moment. Okay. So the fats were the thing I was going to ask about because you said they're harder to do than the proteins mm. and then presumably a lot more of the fats than there are the proteins. And, and the, but they reckon they can get this within 18 months even though yeah. they apparently have they have... Well, how, they, how like, they, this is all, they do all have like obviously company confidentiality and they're not just like publishing everything they find because they are competitive. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to find heaps of information on this. But um, there are also options of using um, animal fat, like no, not animal fats, um, plant fats, <laughs> like um, different oils that we already have. So that's kind of already been tested out. It just doesn't have the same creaminess as... Mm. Because yeah. that sounds like you're sort of mixing it. It's part of the appeal, I think, for people would be if people are, are wanting to go for something that's not from a cow, but they yeah. don't like what you know the sort of the milks that we have that are just sort of like colloidal suspensions made from a juice, I guess, like <laughs> when you like juice a soybean or something. So, but if you mix it with plants, then you you, you feel like you're ruining your own market. But I mean, it's already made from yeast, so it's kind of yeast <laughs> to fungi. Already. It's totally different. <laughs> I think it's they're actually it's, more closely related. 
Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. This stuff. I think we're 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 going to get to that point where you know I can imagine these you know milk testers you know sipping it from a, a cognac sort of glass, um, and and not being able to tell the difference between you know a, a good artificially produced milk <laughs> and something from a cow. And look, that's where we all want to go. We want to go in a direction where we're not using animals for the benefit of humans, which is what it always comes down to at all. And you know we want to move away from that for cosmetics testing for for all sorts of of pharmaceutical testing and you know every time you open a pack of Panadol you've got to think to yourself there was a point in time where this was tested on animals as well and all these things are and, and then when you get into the food industry and the live export industry it just gets even even more problematic so it's a great story Maeve I hope uh, I hope Werribee is uh, transformed by this new industry of the production of artificial milk and um, and again apologies to everyone in Werribee now uh, my, my old view of Werribee is from decades ago and it's not like that anymore mm-hmm. at all it's a great place um, Jen are you Jen Linden, you happy with the team? I reckon they smashed it, Dr. Shane. What do you think? I'm super proud. We're just sitting back. Linda and I are sitting back with smiles on our faces listening to these wonderful students tell us all sorts of cool stuff. Yep. Definitely. I always think that a good show that I listen to when I'm not on the air with you, Dr. Shane, is a show that I find myself telling other people about, oh, I heard this cool story today on the radio. And I've got so many cool stories now to, t- to tell the three other people that I can see on a picnic later today. <laughs> <laughs> nice stuff. Well, I got to tell you, from my perspective, folks, uh, this is the one show of the year where I have to do pretty much zero work, which is <laughs> which is great. For, I feel like I've had a week off and the, and the team has done a fantastic job. So congratulations, all three of you. Uh, good luck with your ongoing course there with, with Jen and Lyndon. I'm sure one day you'll be doing a great job in whatever you do you will be promoting science and and talking about it in a way that people understand. Unfortunately, uh, I know it felt like 30 seconds in your time on Einstein and GoGo has finished. Uh, Thanks so much, all three of you. Have have a great future. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Shane. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening in again. Stay safe. Be kind to each other. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. We're going to be talking about kids and COVID and school next week with some experts from the Royal Children's Hospital. See you then. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.